you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in Habakkuk chapter 3, ending our series going through the book of Habakkuk with the last four verses in Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. If you're looking for that in your Bible, you can always go to the table of contents. You don't have to feel ashamed about that. Uh, but if you're trying to find it on your own and you can't, try Matthew and then go maybe 20, 30 pages toward the front and you're probably pretty close. Uh, Habakkuk chapter 3, starting in verse 16, ending our series going through the book of Habakkuk. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon those who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley are names you likely don't know. You've probably never heard them unless you happen to have studied church history in the English Reformation. These two men were burned at the stake as heretics in 1555 in London for the crime against the church of refusing to follow the Catholic Church's teachings regarding salvation, the Mass, and the Eucharist. But perhaps the only reason that they're still so well-known among people who study these things, the only reason that we might have still heard their names today, isn't because they were martyrs. There are plenty of martyrs, tons of martyrs, whose names I don't know. But perhaps the reason that they are still remembered is because of how they approached their death. After the sentence was pronounced, Latimer reportedly said, I thank God most heartily. That he has provided, or that he has prolonged my life to this end, that I may in this case glorify God by that kind of death. As they approached the stake to which they were tied, they kissed the wood and then knelt and prayed before being tied to the pole and had gunpowder hung around their necks. As the fires began to burn around them, Latimer said to Ridley, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle, by God's grace in England, as shall never be put out. In the face of their own death, in the face of their own martyrdom, they were thankful somehow, worshipful somehow, courageous somehow. That was their final response to the suffering that they were experiencing. In today's text, as we bring our series through the book of Habakkuk to a close, we see his final response to suffering as well. The final words that he has as he's staring down the barrel of all that's about to come. And I think he serves as a godly model for us today. So today in this text, in these four verses, we'll see three final godly responses to suffering. The first final godly response to suffering we might see in our text is trust in the face of fear. Habakkuk has trust in the face of fear in verse 16. He says, I hear 
and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones, and my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. This verse, this final section at the end of Habakkuk, comes as a conclusion to everything that we've heard before. Everything that we've been talking about over these last two or three months going through this book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk saw the righteous around him being oppressed by the wicked in Judah. And he had been crying out to the Lord for God to intervene, for him to do something in the face of this coming calamity, in the face of this injustice. And God's answer to Habakkuk's prayer was that God would act by sending the evil Chaldeans to overthrow Judah, to cast the Israelites into exile. Habakkuk's response to that was to wonder how God could possibly answer his prayers this way. It felt so backwards. How could God solve oppression with more, greater oppression? But God told the prophet that his plans were set in stone, but the righteous would live and be saved through faith. And eventually, yes, the Babylonians would get what was coming to them. But in the meantime, all the earth should keep silent before God because his plans are simply above being questioned. So then Habakkuk finally comes around and he writes chapter 3, a song of praise, a hymn of praise, which gives God the glory for saving his people, even in the midst of terrible circumstances like these. We've seen all that throughout this book. And then in these last verses, the conclusion we can see to Habakkuk's final response to God. And in these verses, they contain the prophet's ultimate posture in light of everything that God has shown him, in light of all that he's learned, all that he has seen. And Habakkuk begins this section in which he transitions from speaking to God about God to speaking to God about himself. And the first thing he says is, I am afraid. He's talking about his own fear. He's afraid. He's heard all of God's plans. And now, because he has heard, now his body trembles. Now his lips quiver at the sound of the plans of God that are coming for Habakkuk and his people. He's so afraid that he can't even speak. Habakkuk is a prophet. Literally, his job, what he does is speak. So this prophet, the guy who is known for speaking, the one who has been praying to God this whole time, the one who even had the audacity, the the gumption to stand before God and to question God's actions to his face based on God's character. Suddenly, this guy can't come up with the words anymore. It's like he's the middle school bully. He's on a field trip to the zoo. He's been talking all day about he doesn't think how gorillas are that big a deal. He thinks if he had the chance, he could probably arm wrestle one of them. They don't seem that big. They don't seem that scary. Surely he's as strong as they are. And he keeps thinking that right up until the point when he walks up to the glass and starts beating his chest. And then the gorilla takes a running start, launches himself at the glass, pow, and it breaks. It's spider webs right at the point of impact. That middle school bully, that little kid beating its chest in the face of a gorilla, all of a sudden doesn't seem so strong. All of a sudden doesn't have as many words to say about what they think is going to happen. He's not talking anymore. He's silent. He's afraid. 
like Habakkuk, he might not even be able to stand. For Habakkuk, he said, rottenness entered his bones. Are they bones or are they twigs? They certainly no longer feel like they can support Habakkuk's own weight anymore. Much less like they might be able to stand before the God of all creation. His frame, his structure, which used to seem so strong, which has carried him throughout his whole life, in which he has trusted every single day, suddenly feels so feeble, so frail. As if he's one touch, one light whisper, one soft breeze away from coming to crashing down, never to stand again. His legs tremble beneath him. Standing, this act he's done so many times, which always has seemed so simple, so easy, suddenly is a Herculean effort in the face of his fear at the plan of God that is coming before him. Every muscle he has is straining. Every tendon is taut. Every ounce of focus is given toward the one singular purpose of not collapsing, of not falling down. Not only has his fear brought him to this point, but his fear is only now making it worse. He doesn't have the strength, and now he knows it. He's the weightlifter who can't get the bar up. And it's gotten to that point where his arms are starting to shake. He's no longer worried about being able to get it all the way up, to be able to get a new maximum effort on that lift that he's done. Now he's afraid that the bar is going to come crashing back down on his own face. Habakkuk is afraid. All of these are signs of fear. He told us such back in verse 2 at the beginning of chapter 3. He said, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. We might be tempted to think that the the praise from verses 3 through 15, that him in the middle, that they might negate the fear, that they might have cast out the fear, that he's simply moved on past his fear. But if anything, the language here seems to have increased. It seems like Habakkuk is more afraid the more he thinks about God. The more he thinks of God's power and glory and might. He's only more in awe and wonder at who God is and what he does and why and how he does it. He's more afraid the more he thinks about it. You see, he hadn't always been thinking about it in that sense. He hadn't always had it at the front of his mind. Like the amateur rock climber who's forgotten his fear of heights until he looks down. He's just been climbing. There's been one rock in front of the other. And then eventually he looks down and remembers, oh, I could fall. It doesn't matter how many times I've done this. It doesn't matter how secure I feel like I am. There's still fear there. He's so afraid that he's speechless. He can't stand under this fear of God. But notice where he goes immediately in that fear. He doesn't dwell on his fear. He doesn't give us verses, chapters, a whole, a whole book explaining his own fear. We don't even get a, a full verse before Habakkuk pivots from his fear to his trust. Yet, he will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade them. You see, in spite of his fear. In spite of all the evidence against this particular course of action, of sitting and waiting, likely against his own natural inclination, he has decided to quietly wait through the pain and suffering so that he can get to the justice on the other side. 
Though his emotion was fear, his instinct was fear, his decision, what he wanted to do, what he ultimately decided to do, was to trust. His decision was a continued faith in God's plan, even though that plan would include some terrible days for Habakkuk. And what a monument of faith that is. When we think through the Bible and think through all of these titans of faith, people who held the line even when I would have bailed, when you might have bailed, I think we have to include Habakkuk in that number. I would love to have Habakkuk's faith and his trust here in this verse, even as much as I would love to avoid his circumstances in this verse. That kind of steadfast courage in the face of fear, that's so rare. And I was struck this week as I paid attention to the news around the school shooting in Nashville by the bravery of the police officers. I watched their body cam footage. I saw them move into the building toward the gunfire. They methodically but quickly and urgently moved through the halls, actively searching for the danger. Every time they opened a door, they had no idea what was on the other side of that door. And they kept moving forward anyway. Me, I was afraid watching. My heart rate skyrocketed just watching that same video, knowing that if I were in their shoes, my body would be trembling. My lips would be quivering. My legs would be failing beneath me out of fear. And I think in a lot of ways, that's the natural response, right? It's normal for us to see their bravery or to see Habakkuk's bravery, his trust and wonder. And think, what would I do if I were in those same shoes? Would I be able to respond in that same way? I mean, so often it feels like it's beyond us. It feels like, no, that's what heroes do. That's what titans of the faith do. That's what people who are better than me do. Me, I'll never be a cop who's charging an active shooter. I will never be a prophet warning an entire nation of impending doom. But I don't think that truth, those thoughts, give us a pass on this same response. I don't think we get to let ourselves off the hook for having this kind of trust, simply because we don't face that same situation. You see, we can trust in God rather than fear. Every single day. We can speak to our neighbor. We can initiate a spiritual conversation with whoever is around us. And that is an act of trust rather than fear. We can love and discipline our kids, even though they might not like it. Knowing that we're following God's plan and God's ways. We can look for all the little ways that we can trust him now. And every time we do so, what we're actually doing is training ourselves to trust him in those major circumstances. Whenever something major happens, we're training ourselves to trust him even when the test results come back. Even when the sirens go off. We're preparing ourselves to ultimately land where Habakkuk has in a place of trust Rather than fear. But I think we also need to prepare ourselves to follow in Habakkuk's pattern. Where he finds joy in the face of circumstances. That's the second final godly response in today's text. Joy in the face of circumstances. Verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom. Nor fruit beyond the vines. The produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. 
Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. What we can see here is an escalation of terrible circumstances that Habakkuk's foreseeing, that he's trying to prepare himself for. He's ready to have joy. He's going to find hope and joy in the God of his salvation, even without any kind of celebration in his life. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines. Figs, fruit of the vine, wine. These were the joyous delicacies of Habakkuk's life. See, a life for him with no figs or wine would have been like a life with no Takis and Pepsi for me. A life with no ice cream and Dr. Pepper for my wife. A life with no fruit snacks and almond milk for my little girl. He's saying even without the best stuff, even without the enjoyment, even without the fun, he is still resolved to take joy in God. And while I recognize that we all have our own hardships, we all have our own seasons of lean pocketbooks, for most of us, A life completely without leisure, completely without enjoyment or celebration. It's hard for us to even imagine what that would be. Some of us got locked indoors during COVID with Wi-Fi and a dozen different streaming services, and we still almost lost our minds. We're so used to having these kinds of comforts that when we have reason for celebration is typically when we're more likely to ignore God rather than more likely to fall away from him or to run toward him. And if that's all he would have lost, I don't think Habakkuk would have been so afraid. I don't think he would have been so nervous. But he keeps going. Even though the produce of the olive fail and there be no fruit on the vines. You see, Habakkuk is preparing himself to find joy even with the loss of comfort. That transition here is slight, but I think it's significant. The fig tree, wine, that's not so much intended for sustenance as it is for celebration. But fruit, olives, and their oil? Well, we're not exactly into bread and water necessities here. There's a shift here from the more frivolous to the less frivolous. I think that continues all the way through verse 17. No fruit, no olives, that's no comfort for Habakkuk. Once they get removed, it's not just that you're no longer joyously celebrating, that you're no longer just gorging yourself on Takis and Pepsi. Now you no longer have fruit. You don't have anything sweet left. Your diet is down to the things that you probably avoid eating if you can. No sweet to go with your savory. No oil to cook your food or to flavor your bread. Habakkuk's not only getting ready to live a life without celebration, he's preparing to live a life of gray blandness, mere survival from one day to the next. And even in that day, he is preparing himself to take joy in the God of his salvation. That reference to olives could also be taken to the extent that religious rituals, religious services might have been disrupted. To be anointed with oil or its medicinal properties. That was common in that time. It was everywhere in that time. And Habakkuk's saying there's not going to be any of that to go around. He's getting ready to find joy even without basic comfort. But that's not all. He doesn't stop there. He prepares himself for one step further. The final step. 
A life of joy even without necessities. Though the fields yield no food. Though the flock be cut off from the fold. And there be no herd in the stalls. You see, at that point, no wine, no fruit. That's the least of Habakkuk's concerns. He's getting ready. He's preparing himself for a future in which there are no crops to be harvested. There may be no pen for the animals to be found in. There may be no animals left to provide food or to provide anything else. By the time we get here, we no longer have the necessities of bread, milk, meat. So there's no fig cakes, no anointing oil for the worker who's cooked by the sun. No cereal, no vegetables, no milks, no mutton, no wool for the prophet or for his people. All of these products of life. From the necessary bread and milk to the superfluous, the the sumptuous wine and fig, they've all been gone. But rather than wallowing in despair, as you or I might be tempted to do, Habakkuk chooses to rejoice. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. You see, if we thought he had faith through the fear in 16... I think the faith he experiences in 17 and 18, the faith he shows us is way beyond that. It blows verse 16 out of the water. He's facing utter calamity. The loss of every celebration, of every comfort, of every necessity. And he still decides to rejoice? That's wild. Sometimes we hear people talk about joy and it feels so cheap, right? Just, just choose joy. It's all a matter of perspective. You can't control your circumstances, but you can control your attitude. So often I hear that and it just sounds like a platitude. It sounds like just words that we're throwing around that we're supposed to say. And we say them because we think that's what we're supposed to say. But Habakkuk's not doing that. Habakkuk, we've seen, he has no problem saying exactly what he really thinks, what he really feels. Even when that seems like something that we shouldn't be saying, that we shouldn't be feeling. We saw that in all three of these chapters. He knows the full extent of the judgment that is coming against Judah. He knows the pain of the exile is about to happen. And he is terrified of it. He's not ignorantly giving a church answer so that he can somehow get God off his back. No, with full knowledge of what's about to happen. With a complete understanding of everything that he's about to lose. Of everything he's about to go through. He is deciding to rejoice in God. To take joy in the God of his salvation. And I think that distinction there is key. Because he's not just rejoicing in general. He's not just taking joy in the little things. Finding the silver lining in every cloud. He's rejoicing how? Where? In the Lord. He's taking joy. How and where? In the God of his salvation. And I think that's ultimately what allows Habakkuk to respond this way. In the face of the suffering and pain that he's about to experience. You see, he's not doing this in his own power. As much as we should follow Habakkuk's example. As much as this is a real choice that we have to make. We have to remember that the same God who's allowing these circumstances, he has also provided his own presence to us, his own joy to us in the midst of those circumstances. 
He's not abandoning Habakkuk to his fate. God is with Habakkuk, even in the midst of the coming invasion. And I think that's the difference between Christian joy and just generic positivity. Your positive attitude, your ability to choose joy in your own power, that can help. Sure, it is a choice that you make. But you have a definite limit. You have a breaking point. You have a line that eventually will get crossed where you are no longer in your own power able to even make the decision to choose joy. And if you don't believe that, then I have a rusty screw on my desk that I can put in your driveway tomorrow morning and we'll see exactly how long your joyous attitude lasts on that Monday morning. We can test this out real quick. But the prophet here isn't merely finding joy in God's presence generally, though I think he does. I think we can. He's finding it specifically in God's salvation. He's taking his joy in the one who he believes, who he trusts, will ultimately save him from his circumstances. He knows that things are going to get bad. He knows that his world as he knows it is going to come crashing down. He even knows that he might suffer a worldly death in the midst of God's plans for his people, in the midst of the coming Babylonian invasion. But he's able to find comfort and joy that God will act to save him, that he will vindicate him when all is said and done. He has the faith and trust which enables him to find joy in every circumstance. It's like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar told them to bow, told them to worship his golden image. They said no. And so he threatened to throw them into the fiery furnace for refusing to bow down to him. And then in Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, they said this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Did you catch that? We trust that God is able to save us, that he will save us. But even if he doesn't save us in an earthly way, we are still worshiping him and not you. Even if our salvation is to come at the resurrection of the dead, I will still worship him and not you. This is not only faith, but this is joy in the face of sure death, utter calamity. May we be able to finally respond in the godly way that Habakkuk does with joy in the face of our circumstances. And that ultimately brings us to the third and final godly response to suffering in Habakkuk. Worship in the face of suffering. We can respond with worship even in the face of great pain, suffering, and persecution. Verse 19. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. Habakkuk, one more time in this verse, switches his perspective. He's been talking about himself, about his own feelings and reactions to God's plans in today's text. But he ends the book 
verse 19, his oracle, his song of chapter 3, with an effusive song of praise to God. He's worshiping in this verse. He's showing us what it looks like to do what he said he was going to do in verse 18, to rejoice in the Lord, to take joy in the God of his salvation. He says that, and then he does it in 19. It's not only the resolve that it takes to say it, to to think it in the moment, the decision that you might make to choose that joy. Ultimately, it's the follow-through, the execution of that decision in the worship of the God whose salvation you've received. Ultimately, the the response is living every moment in response for the glory of God, whom you're worshiping. And that worship, when we do it, it has content. He doesn't just generically rejoice. He rejoices saying, God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. He's praising God for his strength. The same strength that's sending the Babylonians to judge his people. The same strength that will bring justice against those rulers. And the same strength that has scared the pants off Habakkuk in these verses. That's what he's praising God for. God is strong. And he uses that strength. For the salvation of his people. For the final result of his own glory. He makes us steady. See that? He makes my feet like the deer's. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, when I hear feet like the deer, I don't immediately think about steadfast security, about a sure-footed, stable, rock word picture. Walking like a deer in my head gives me the same image as walking like a giraffe. Steady isn't what I would think. But I think that's... My fault, my ignorance rather than the text here. You who hunt probably know deer can be pretty graceful, pretty agile when they want to be. Psalm chapter 18, verses 31 through 33 says this. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer And set me secure on the heights. So not only is this picture just about steadiness in general. But to make your feet like the deer is specifically to make you steady in the high places. Think like a goat on the side of a mountain. Steady when a human would typically have fallen by now. And ultimately, where this verse goes. Where it ends. It's for God is taking each and every one of us who have trusted in him. The high places are where he is ultimately taking us. He is strong. He is our strength. He makes us secure and steady. But ultimately, finally, he gives us the victory. He makes me tread on my high places. The underlying reason that Habakkuk was able to trust in the place of fear To find joy in the midst of his circumstances. To worship in the face of his suffering. Is because he knows how this ends. He knows the God of his salvation will go out for the salvation of his people. And he will actually save them. He will save the afflicted righteous from their persecutors. 
He will save his people from their captors. He will rescue his justice from those who would violate it. And he will save his people in the future just as he saved them in the past. You see, Habakkuk knew that God's salvation was coming. He knew it was on its way. He may not have had a full picture. He may not have had a a clear path from where he was to where that salvation was going to come and where it was going to be. But he knew that God was going to be faithful. That he was going to save his people. He trusted God's promises would come to pass, even in the face of the severe suffering and pain that he might have to go through before he gets there. And we know now, looking back, that God has saved his people. Through the perfect life of Jesus Christ, God's perfect law has been fulfilled. Through the death of Jesus Christ, in our place and for our sins, God's justice has been satisfied. Through the resurrection of Jesus, that holiday that we celebrate next week, God's life has defeated sin and death. Through the gift of Faith by grace applied to us when we repent and believe. We are able to receive his salvation, his victory. And that fullness of hope is what Habakkuk was ultimately resting in. What he was ultimately hoping for. That's what allowed him to respond in these ways. To respond like this in the face of suffering. And that's what still enables us to do the same today that he did then. We now today can sing the song of victory that is written by Habakkuk in chapter 3, joining him in the praise and worship of our God. We can do that today and we can do that every day. It's my hope that this series through Habakkuk has been helpful to you. I hope that you've been able to see the truth of the gospel, even in this obscure Old Testament book. Even in this book that a lot of us may not have even read up until this point. But that you've seen it each and every week. I hope that you've seen how Christ is the point of every page in your Bible. And I hope that this encourages you to, to read Scripture, all of Scripture. Read it for depth. Read it for gospel meeting. Read it to see Jesus and his truth, his gospel, on every page, every verse. But today, as this series comes to a close, It's my hope that the Spirit will use this text to help us respond to suffering how Habakkuk finally did. Even if we have to go through the same journey that he went through to get there. That we might respond with trust in the face of fear. Joy in the face of circumstances. And worship in the place of suffering. And I think we can begin that response right now today. Our songs this morning are not the songs that we had originally planned. Yet, I think if we sing them, I think if we'll listen to them, I think if we'll worship through them, we can begin to respond the way that Habakkuk did here. That last phrase, to the choir master with stringed instruments. That should remind us that this is a song that Habakkuk wrote from the heart. This is a song that contained his response. It's a song that modeled our response. So like Habakkuk ended, let us continue in effusive praise to the God of our salvation. Let us sing like people who have been saved from the consequences of our sin. 
And if that's never been true for you up until this moment, I hope that that's how you respond. That you might be saved from the consequences of your sin through repentance and belief. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Let's pray. God, thank you for all that you've done for us this morning. Thank you for the chance to be able to come together with your people to hear your word. Thank you for the chance to be able to respond to that hearing in the worship of you. To continue our worship of you. And wherever songs we sing, not just today, but every week. We are people who are afraid, so help us trust in the face of our fear. We are people who have circumstances that are many and varied, some good, some bad. So God, give us joy in the middle of whatever we're going through. And God, help us to worship in the face of whatever suffering we might find. Help us to know that you are the God of our salvation even in those moments. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.